This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello from Nashville. We have a new co-host, and that's Chris Ferdinandi. Chris, do you want to say hi? <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, everyone. Coming in from Boston. Now, you haven't been on for a little bit. Do you want to just remind people who you are and then they can kind of get used to hearing your voice? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the Vanilla JS guy. So I'm going to um, uh, maybe bring a, an interesting angle to this. I like working without um, tools or frameworks, things like that. I'm excited oh, to have why, you. That, that's why AJ was interested in having you on in the first place, somebody to back him up. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know I have an ally. I'm super excited to have you too. Awesome. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, you were on in February. I'm just going to throw it out there. And uh, at 299. So anyway, we, we talked about how to learn JavaScript when you're not a developer. And yeah, we talked a bit about vanilla JS and all that stuff. <laughs> we have a special guest this week, and that's Dan Shapiro. Dan, do you want to say hi? Yes, hi. Hi from sunny Tel Aviv. Well, actually, it's night outside right now, but it was definitely sunny all through the day. So yeah. There you go. Do you want to remind or let people know who you are? Yeah, great. So I'm uh, the uh, performance tech lead at Wix, which means that uh, I'm responsible for making sure that uh, Wix sites hosted on the Wix platform load and execute as quickly as possible, which on a good day means that I can get home, come home and say that today I made 100 million websites load and execute faster, which is pretty awesome, I think. Way to multitask. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Any, every change goes a long way when you've got so many sites hosted on your platform. There you go. You should, you should make it sound like you, you go to each one one at a time, you know. <laughs> today. Today, today yeah. Today, I, I specifically made this site, just this site, this one site yeah. work faster. Yeah, sometimes I do uh, talk, you know, chat with uh, experts who are using our sites, our service or platform and look specifically at their sites and give them suggestions. So sometimes I actually also do that as well. Awesome. Yeah, it's funny because the first time I heard of Wix, um, my mom mentioned it to me and I was like, what is this? And you know, it's a, it's a hosted site builder, basically. And uh, yeah, she's like, Oh, I'm going to use it for my classes. She teaches high school math. So yeah, that's the basic idea, trying to provide uh, everybody out there with the ability to have an online presence. Uh, that's basically our mission statement. So, you know, you don't have to be an expert about web technologies. It never hurts, but you don't have to be an expert and you can still get uh, a really an awesome website. So, so, yeah. So if she's happy with it, we're happy with it. Yeah, I think she's pretty happy with it. I, I don't check in on how she's doing at work all that often, so... So that's kind of why I thought having you on to talk about performance would be pretty cool because you have this responsibility of trying to improve performance for a lot of things that you don't have control over and just a ton of different variables. So I thought that, that would be interesting for people. 
Yeah, that's exactly true. I mean, one of the biggest challenges is that in our platform, we try to offer people as much flexibility as possible. Obviously, you know, there are bounds and certain limitations and restrictions of what can be done, but it's actually a very freeform uh, service and, and platform. So people can do very, very different things with it. And consequently, getting every site built with Wix to become faster is a really big challenge, especially as we continue to add more features and functionality. So, so this is really interesting, especially in the sense that when I work on performance, I'm working on an app that I probably built or at least worked on a significant part of. And so I can kind of go in and go, okay, I know how to make this perform a little bit better. Or, you know, I, I can generally look at specific things and attack them. You're working on a platform where I mean, who knows what people are doing on there, right? How do you sure. do that? It actually, it's, it's even more difficult than that because not only are, do we have millions of users uh, leveraging the platform and, and doing you know, almost whatever they want with it, but there are also a lot of developers within Wix who are working and extending the platform. So it's a challenge on both ends because, you know, I don't think anybody at Wix even has a total grasp of all the complexity of the platform that we built. You know, at Wix currently, we have uh, something like over around 2,300 people, half of, of which are developers. And the majority of developers are actually front-end developers. So we've got hundreds of front-end developers actually working on our products and services and, and platform. So it's, it's that challenge as well. And, you know, we like to say that each and one of these developers has the keys to the kingdom. They can all push stuff into production. Now, obviously, we've got processes in place to uh, ensure, you know, high quality, doing stuff with TDD and code reviews and whatnot. But still, uh, there's an awful lot going on also in terms of development that's internal to Wix. Uh, I think the last time I checked, there was something like a change in production every two minutes. That's 24-7. Wow. So it's it's really challenging in this context to make sure that uh, we keep on progressing and avoid regressing when it comes to performance, especially as we add, as I said before, more features and capabilities into the platform. And a lot of that has to do with monitoring performance at various stages, both of development and of production. And that's, I guess, is the topic that we'll be talking about today. Yeah, I kind of wanted to start there, maybe touch on some other things, but I thought it was really interesting. And one of the links you sent over, it was a talk that you did. Um, you talked about how at Wix you consider, because you're able to monitor these things and know when something is getting worse, you actually consider that a bug. It's even beyond a bug. It can be in the sense that it can literally halt, you know, deployments. Uh, if, yeah. we see, if we see a, a regression in performance, uh, so, uh, you know, before we release a version that we just won't release it until that regression is fixed. And really, one of the great things for me, at least, is that performance has been specified as a top priority throughout the organization. So I, I can literally really go to any part of the organization, basically just say, stop, don't push this into production because it regresses performance. And, you know, they want to listen, but they also have to listen. So that's, that's great from my perspective. 
Can I step in here real quick? Because, I mean, we're talking about performance. But what does performance mean? I mean, is it how fast the page loads? Is it how many resources it uses on the front end or back end? Are there other measures that you have that I didn't name in that one or two? Well, you know, I really like the the rail model. For example, when looking in terms of uh, in terms of performance. So, as you correctly said, performance can mean different things in different contexts. Uh, for example, when we're looking at user sites, usually the most important aspect currently it's it's kind of starting to change, but for now, the most important aspect is still load time. How quickly uh, the page gets into the in front of the face of the person who's visiting that site, uh, because you know people. It's been drilled into people that if like you build an online store and it doesn't load within a second or two or maybe three, then you're basically going to be losing your visitors. And so when we're look, talking about user sites, that's still the uh, most important aspect. However, when we're talking, for example, about our editor, which is the uh, WYSIWYG tool you actually use to build sites, obviously you want it to load also as quickly as possible, but it turns out that there, a more important aspect actually has to do with responsiveness, so that when the editor is up and running, when people interact with it, they want it to be really responsive to their interactions when they grab something, when they click on something, they want it to be, you know, um, uh, marked instantly and not like have a certain delay or when they drag stuff around, the dragging has to be really smooth. So, you know, it does change in different contexts. But like I said, for for user sites currently, it's still mostly about load times. Now, I, I want to push on that a little bit too, because I talk to different people and they say load time. And what some people mean is, the 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 first thing you see on the page and other people it's after it loads in all of the images css and executes all the javascript so when you say load time what do you mean there yeah that's actually an excellent question uh especially again when you look at the complexities of or or the variations of different sites that are hosted on wix um because diff you're absolutely correct that different people who built sites on our platform, uh, the load time can mean different things for them. If it's really a simple site, then it actually can mean something as simple as when you see the main text or the uh, main image or whatever. On the other hand, if it's an e-com site, then it may be it's how quickly can somebody uh, click the purchase button. Or if it's a site that supports booking, how soon can you actually uh, book, make a booking on that particular site? So it, you're certainly absolutely correct that the meaning can vary between different sites. I recall one of the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was that gave this talk. I think it was one of the, I, I, it was one of the uh, uh, the talks at O'Reilly Fluent that I, that I attended. I forget the name of the person who gave it, but he actually said, that in many cases, what people consider to be the prime indicator for when a site is loaded is when the hero text and hero image are actually uh, displayed. So it's kind of, so yeah, it will vary between different people, but so what we primarily try to look at are the more or less standard things. So it's first content, stuff like first contentful paint, and when is the site fully responsive? 
And also if there are particular features on that site, like let's say I mentioned before e-commerce, when is that functionality actually loaded and active? So we do in fact look at its various factors and at different factors based on site type. That makes sense. We have our vanilla JS guy here, so I have to ask, what's faster, React or Vue? <laughs> um, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> I suppose like all things in life, Chuck, it would depend. I, I have to poke you a little bit, but I am curious, does Wix use any of the front-end framework? Yeah, so we're really big into React. I think we were actually one of the first big React installations outside of Facebook. We actually uh, transitioned to React. I joined Wix approximately four years. Well, actually, it's almost exactly four years ago. And at the time that I joined, we were already in the process of of effectively rebuilding our uh, our application, our framework using React. So we're really big into React. Uh, one of the main motivations actually that we had for going with React was that we wanted to do server-side rendering. Uh, at the time, we were 100% client-side rendered. And uh, now we are almost totally server-side rendered, but it only took us almost four years. We so I actually have a, I have a question about that, Dan. Because um, <clears throat> I... Um, I'm, I'm familiar with Wix. I, I used to do some consulting for some nonprofits and Wix is pretty big in the nonprofit community. Yes. Um, I, um, uh, one of the things I've noticed on some of the sites I've looked at is if, um, if you turn JS off, which is not very common, but I'm just, I'm thinking hypothetically from like a performance use case, let's say someone is on a slow, um, like a slow network where the JavaScript file times out or, um, they're at a corporate environment with a really repressive firewall kind of policy that you know blocks anything that's not on a whitelist. Um, a lot of the sites that I've seen the last time I've looked just don't show anything. Um, is oh, that still right. the case? And how does that factor into kind of the, the performance angle here? Okay, so uh, we are actually in a sort of a, in, in transition in this regard. So as I mentioned before, uh, we were 100% client-side rendered. Uh, and that was the case until more or less the middle of last year. And since then, we deployed uh, server-side rendering in the middle of last year, initially just to mobile clients, and now it's for 100% of the client devices. So up until the middle of last year, you would have been absolutely correct in that because it was wholly client-side rendered using client-side JavaScript, then without JavaScript, you basically got uh, no visible client for the end user. Sure. Uh, and to be fair, that's probably the last time I looked too. It's been yeah. Uh, we are currently, as I mentioned, 100% server-side rendered, or almost 100%. There are still certain cases in which it isn't, but it's almost 100%. But we are still using JavaScript for some layouting. So if you disable JavaScript right now, even though it's server-side rendered and even though you get the full HTML, you might still get a blank site because we're not properly layouting the site. Uh, and, and like I said, we're still using JavaScript for that. We actually also have another project going on right now, which uh, is about trying to go uh, as fully CSS 
and as little JavaScript for layouting as possible. So then you would actually get a visible site even though JavaScript is disabled. Now, what you might be able to do with that site might be very limited because like I said, if it's an e-com site, probably all that e-com functionality uh, won't work. So yeah, so you'll probably get, a, so within a few months, uh, every Wix site that you would go to would be visible to at least to some extent, even if JavaScript is disabled, how functional it would be, you know, depends. I would imagine, I just want to add really quick. So if you're switching from JavaScript to CSS for layout, because you can now use grid, that's going to, not only will it work without JavaScript, but it's going to be a lot faster because the browsers are now, they've re-architected things in a way where it's going to be more performant to use CSS for something like that than JavaScript. Oh, for sure. Uh, there's another advantage as well. Um, because we don't want to see things like move around the screen, as or let's put it differently, we don't want things to be displayed incorrectly before they're properly laid out. Yep, which yep. Means that in, in many cases, we actually hide the content while it's downloading and then use the JavaScript to properly lay it out and then make it visible. With CSS <laughs> layout, you can have it visible from the get-go, which means that as the HTML is arriving at the client, it's that portion of the HTML is immediately visible and the user gets to see things early, uh, sooner. And then obviously, as you stated, also the layouting itself is done faster because it's done, it's GPU accelerated and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So Dan, one of the things I was really excited about when I saw the invite for this one come through is the web performance API, which I think was you know kind of the, the high level topic here. Is that something you guys are using internally to measure performance of the Wix sites? And if so, can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely, for sure. So yeah, I'd just like to mention that um, uh, the information, you know, I, I really got into this API. I think it's an awesome API. I like it so much, in fact, that uh, when O'Reilly Fluent came around, I actually suggested initially just to do a talk about that. And then they came back and said, hey, why don't you do a workshop instead? And initially I thought, well, do I really have enough content for a workshop? And by the time that the workshop came around, I actually had to start cutting stuff out because it turned out that there was just so much stuff to talk about. Because this is a big API, but it's a really awesome and very useful API. And we definitely use it internally at different stages of the process in order that, to ensure, as I mentioned before, that, that we're not regressing in terms of performance and, in fact, that we are progressing because my experience with performance has always been that unless you're progressing you're almost by definition regressing it's never stationary you're either moving forward or you're moving back um, so so yeah uh, we are using the web performance api to actually monitor performance at three different stages you can say uh, the first stage is basically the development stage. Uh, it turns out that uh, the Web Performance API actually integrates really well with tools like uh, uh, the Chrome Dev Console, for example. So it's a really excellent tool to use while you're actually working on your application. And you can use it during the development process to measure the impact of various changes that you're making and 
and you can actually see it really well, visually very in a very uh, good way within the Chrome DevTools. At right at the other end of, of the uh, spectrum, uh, you can use it in production. We actually monitor, collect information from user sessions. It's all anonymous, but it's performance-related information that we collect from active sessions. And we've got you know hundreds of millions of them going on all the time. We collect all this information, and that gives us a really good understanding about what how our applications are actually uh, behaving. You know, when real users are using them out in the field. And it turns out that we can also use these APIs in a sort of, a, let's call it a middle or central phase, uh, pre-production pre during testing. So we can actually have automated tools that check the performance of various specific use cases. And then if we see a, a regression during these automated tests, we can actually say, okay, I'm not going to push this uh, version into production. So, yeah, so it's, it's really beneficial to use these APIs at all these stages of the development process. Awesome. Uh, sorry, I was on mute. So for, for folks who don't know what the performance API is, because um, I've only heard about it recently, actually, I think in a, that gentleman from Netflix may have given about um, some changes they made to their, their JavaScript approach. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what that is, how it works? Um, you know, maybe just step back a bit. Because I, I think this is an API that a lot of folks just aren't familiar with. Yeah, for sure. So there's a, actually a working group within the W3C called the Web Performance Working Group. Uh, the co-chairs are Ilya uh, Grigoric, I think, from Google, and uh, Todd, I can't pronounce his last name, from Microsoft. Uh, and uh, they've been working for a while now on actually exposing a lot of the information that, if you think about it, is really available within the browser out to JavaScript running on the browser. So, for example, when uh, the browser downloads a, a certain resource, it might be a JavaScript file, it might be an image or an HTML, whatever, or font, whatever, uh, it actually can very easily measure the various stages of downloading that resource. You know, you might have a DNS lookup, and then that would be followed by a TCP handshake and the SSL handshake, and then you send the request to the web server, and then you get the beginning of the response going all the way to the end of the response, and, and so forth. So you've got all these various stages of, let's say, downloading a resource, and as I said, the browser can easily measure each and every one of these stages and then basically expose them to you. So the basic idea behind the Web Performance API is basically for the browser to expose all this performance-related information that it's collecting and to expose this information in a way that's coherent and uniform. Uh, it essentially maintains a sort of uh, an internal buffer where it places uh, uh, performance entries uh, sequentially. So, you know, if something happens before something else, if downloading file A happens before downloading file B, then that will be their sequence within that buffer. And then you can go and inspect the various entries within the buffer and, and basically just see 
the impact that these events had on overall performance. So, for example, the first entry within the buffer would naturally be downloading the HTML file itself for that uh, web page or website. Now, you know, the HTML actually starts downloading before your any part of your code gets to run. So in the past, you basically had no insight about things that happened before your JavaScript actually arrived. Once your JavaScript got there, you could start measuring things yourself. But before your JavaScript even got there, you basically had no insight into the things that happened then. So now you can actually have access to these timing, to all these timing information uh, about downloading the the HTML that happened before your JavaScript was downloaded. So as I mentioned, you can basically check, uh, let's say, the DNS time for your site. I don't know how many organizations out there are actually verifying that they're getting acceptable performance from their DNS all over the globe. And we definitely do actually measure that. Uh, it was actually an interesting thing because I think in, in 2016, uh, if you guys happen to recall, there was this uh, cyber attack on the uh, Dyne DNS provider, which basically like mm-hmm. shut down half the internet. Uh, and we could actually see that in the DNS graphs, uh, the DNS performance graphs that we had running based on this performance information that we were collecting. So uh, this, and and basically, you know, this gave us gave us sort of a heads up and the ability to react to something like that sooner than we might have otherwise responded to it. So you know, I can go on and talk about this forever. So if you have any question or or and you want to ask me anything, you know, just make sure to interrupt me. So as I mentioned, you've got this internal buffer of entries. You've got an entry for uh, the navigation to the web page itself. You've got additional entries for every additional resource that you download, for example. Uh, You've got entries for paint events uh, and so on and so forth. And then you can basically go and do a query of these entries and basically get back an array of entries that match your query. So, for example, you could ask, uh, give me the entries for uh, the paint events or give me the entries for all the resources. And then from these resources, filter out just the fonts that you downloaded. And that way you can actually know how long it took to download the fonts, the, the overall size of all the fonts. Now, going back to our initial discussion about the fact that our our pages are so malleable and and the users can change them, you know, when you're building maybe a a specific site, then you you can at least initially say, okay, I know exactly which fonts I'm going to be using in my page, and uh, I can calculate in advance their total size, and I know what their impact is going to be you know, is going to be. Uh, In our case, where users can literally pick whichever font they want, that's something that I want to monitor. If I can, if I start saying that uh, fonts have 
too great impact on the uh, performance of WIG sites, we can start thinking about what to do about it. Maybe we should switch us to a CDN provider. Maybe we should encourage uh, people to use fewer fonts within the same page. Maybe we can use resource hints to start loading certain fonts earlier. There's a lot of ways in which we can respond to something like that once we are aware of it. But even if you are building your own site and you think you have total control, at the end of the day, you know, somebody else within your team or somebody who's in charge of the content for your site or, or a designer can play with your site, add some text, and all of a sudden you're downloading seven additional fonts that you haven't considered. And these things can you know, uh, have a really significant impact in terms of size. And if, for example, that person didn't specify a fallback font, then what would happen is that until all these fonts are downloaded, then the user, then the visitor to the site might not actually be seeing any text at all. So the site is rendered, the text is there, but nobody's seeing anything because the font hasn't downloaded yet. So that's, that's one interesting example of that. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So a lot of what you've described seems like stuff that I can already access today via, say, like developer tools, looking at like the network tab or something like this. Do those two... So is that tab using this API behind the scenes? Do you get any benefit from kind of tying into the JavaScript API versus just opening up dev tools and looking at your portal? Like why, why would I prefer the API over um, something visual? Just hypothetically. So... Okay, so as you recall, I mentioned that we can actually we actually do performance measurements at, at three different stages. So the development stage, you're absolutely correct that a lot of this information is also made available to you visually through the development tools. But we also want to use this information during uh, automated pre-release tests, and we also want to use this information in production by actually collecting these information from real user sessions and then uh, sending them back to our telemetry servers and then we can graph them and do all sorts of analysis on them. So first of all, these APIs do provide you the ability to access this information in other uh, stages apart from the actual development process. But what I found is that often this information is also very, very useful in, during the development, even when I am working with the dev console. Um, say, for example, I'll give you just you know, a really simple example. Say you've, you've just got a link from somebody, of your, or let's say you just opened your site without DevTools open, and then it loaded very slowly for some reason. Now, you're not sure that if you now open the DevTools and go to the network tab and reload, you're not sure that this behavior will actually reproduce. 
So with this, with this, you can actually open the DevTools, go to the console, and enter a very simple uh, JavaScript instruction in the Dev console, and get back timing information for the resources that have already been do uh, downloaded while DevTools was actually closed. So that's one example of where it could be useful even mm -hmm. with the presence of DevTools. Another thing though, is uh, that there's also the, as a part of the Web Performance API, there's actually called something called the User Timing API, which basically lets you as a developer insert custom events into that internal buffer of events. So in addition to the events that are automatically generated by the uh, browser itself, as I mentioned, for when downloading resources, when performing painting, something like that, you can also inject your own events. So if you've got, let's say, some sort of a lengthy computational operation that's potentially asynchronous, so it's happening in stages, you can put a marker at the beginning. Uh, actually, you can do that via a command called, quite literally, performance.mark. So you can put a marker at the beginning of this um, logical operation, put another marker at the end of this logical operation, and then you do some performance.measure providing the name of the marker at the beginning and the name of the marker at the end. What, now, what's really cool about that is that then if you go into the performance tab in the dev console in Chrome, you will actually see those markers. There's a, a central region there in that dev tools called, uh, um, I think it's user timings, uh, and you will actually see them there. Uh, so you can actually go and check and see and correlate your logical operations to network operations that were happening at the time or to JavaScript operations that were happening at that time. Even as I said, even if this operation was uh, asynchronous and composed of various stages, you know, a bit of JavaScript, some network, more JavaScript, more network, and so forth. So uh, what I found is that... Um, this combination of using the web performance MPI in conjunction with the dev tools actually made both of them more powerful than they would either, you know, each would be uh, independently or separately from the other. I wanted to go back. You touched on it for a second um, a minute ago when you were talking about resource hints, because I don't think everyone is familiar with what this is. And I know in your talk, like there's a, there's a million different combinations, um, but can you maybe spend like, I don't know, two or three minutes talking about how you guys are using these and are there some that people can easily add that are going to give them like a big bang for their buck? Yeah, so... Yeah, resource hints are a topic, I think, <laughs> for potentially a whole show <laughs> that you guys might want to do eventually. They're awesome. I really like them. I think they're a great addition, and we, we use them significantly. Uh, basically, a resource hint is a mechanism where you can tell the browser something like, I'm going to need a resource and let you know, you can start downloading it now if it doesn't really interfere with other stuff that you're doing. And then when you actually do need it, then it will already be there. And then you will be able to use it immediately without having to wait for the download. 
So a great example of that, again, going back to the fonts, I see that I'm talking about fonts a lot today. It Up to recently, it's really been up to the browser to decide when it's going to be to download fonts. You would, um, you know, you could specify the font families in the CSS and you would then you assign, you know, those fonts to text. But until that text was rendered, uh, the font wouldn't actually download. Actually, what would happen was that when the text was rendered, then the browser would see that it actually needs a certain font, and then it would download that font. And as I mentioned before, uh, if there was no fallback font until that font was downloaded, you actually didn't see anything. If maybe there was a fallback font, but then you would see the text in one font, and then it would switch to the other, which would be uh, visible, you know, kind of jarring potentially. So with resource hints, you can actually give a link, a link tag, and the rel is, let's say, uh, set to preload. And then you actually give the URL to that font file, and the browser would just download that font file, potentially at a lower priority, and then essentially either just maybe just stored in the local cache. And then when it actually does need that resource, hey, it's in the cache. I can use it immediately. So there's preload, which essentially says to tells the browser, look, I know that I'm going to be using this resource in this page later on. Download it now because it's beneficial for me that you do that. And there's a prefetch, which basically, which is kind of similar, which says, I'm going to need this resource, but not in this page but rather in a future page. So I don't want you to impact the performance of the current page, but if you manage to find some idle time, then it would be great if you start downloading that resource, you know, really low, low priority. I don't mind if it happens at a slower rate, but it would still be great if by the time that I actually need it, it's there. There's also another option, which is pre-connect. Uh, when I talked before about the step, various stages when you uh, download an HTML file, I mentioned that initially you need to do the DNS lookup, then the TCP, uh, setting up the TCP connection, then doing the SSL handshake. Well, pre-connect basically says, look, I know that I'm going to be downloading some resource from this domain. I just don't know which resource yet. So do all this uh, step, I'll do, I'll do all these steps of setting up the connection, but just keep that connection open without actually trying to download anything over that connection. And then when you actually do need that connection, hey, it's up and running and you can use it instantly without having to do all this negotiation. And you'd be surprised in how, at how long these steps can actually take. I mean, DNS you know, can take a really long time. You know, you might hit a DNS server and doesn't know uh, the, the answer and it kind of propagates out and, and that can take a while. Likewise, if you're maybe setting up a, a transatlantic connection, the TCP connection and the SSL handshake, those can take uh, hundreds of milliseconds. So, so yeah, if you can save that time by doing it sooner, that's, that can be a really big benefit. And there are others as well. It's just like I said, it's a huge topic. And, and this is really supported by most browsers now. And those that don't support it, well, you just didn't get any benefit, but it's not 
you know, it's not causing and doing any harm. So it's it's a really great thing to use. And I've seen a lot of companies talking about, you know, the improvements that they got from using resource hints in a proper way. Now, obviously, you do need to exercise some care because if you're downloading a certain resource, it's potentially in contention with other resources that you're downloading because at the end of the day, you know, bandwidth is limited and, and so forth. So if you're downloading a certain resource before you actually need it, make sure that it's you're not accidentally blocking, let's say, other resources that you do need right now. So you do need to exercise some care, but overall, it's a really great addition to your arsenal in terms of performance. Awesome. Sounds like a lot of things to play with. I know I've dug into this a little bit when I was doing like research for my CSS talk um, because of CSS being render blocking. But um, the other question I wanted to ask you, um, so you, I feel like most people are bundling, but you actually talked about there being some trade-offs there. So can you discuss that? Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that we uh, um, try to do, especially given that we're still dependent, as we talked about before, on the JavaScript that we download currently still for certain aspects of, of visibility and certainly for interactivity, uh, we, we need to download JavaScript content to the client side. And as has been shown often, JavaScript is one of the most uh, impactful resources that yep. that you need to download. Uh, uh, so you really want to be as smart as possible about that. Uh, and what makes it even more challenging is that the network protocols are changing, and this also has impact on, for example, let's say downloading JavaScript. I mean, up to a few years ago, all of us have were using HTTP 1.1, which basically said that uh, we could only download one resource at a time over a connection. Now, what most browsers did was open up six sockets to a server and just keep those sockets open. So you basically could download six resources in parallel. Well, now we're all we're in the process of transitioning to HTTP 2, and uh, all of a sudden, it supports multiplexing. So now you can download theoretically an unlimited number of resources from the same server in parallel. So that all of a sudden changes the game because, you know, yeah. previous. so what we've found is that on the one hand, you want to strive to bundle resources together because, uh, for example, it makes uh, gzip more effective. If you take, uh, if you uh, have, uh, let's say, two smaller JavaScript files and you and you bundle them into a single JavaScript file, then compression for that single file is going to be much more effective because compression is basically built on repeated patterns. So you basically leverage the patterns from the first file into the content of the second file. Whereas uh, if it's two separate files, then you kind of like as if starting from scratch. So, so compression is much less effective. So here's a big advantage of bundling together. But when you're bundling together with JavaScript, you're not actually starting to parse and certainly not to run that JavaScript until that entire file is downloaded. That, you know, in this regard, JavaScript is very different from HTML. HTML, you can start 
parsing it and, and, and actually rendering it as it's downloading that you can't do that with JavaScript. So if you have like a huge JavaScript file and until that JavaScript file finishes downloading, you basically you're just waiting for it to arrive. Whereas if you've broken that JavaScript file into, let's say, two or three separate chunk files, then if the first one arrives while the other two, let's say, are still downloading, you can already uh, you know, parse that file, maybe even start executing that file. So it, it's kind of a, of a trade-off between that. So you want, on the one hand, you want your files to be uh, um, large enough to get the benefit of compression. But on the other hand, you want them to be like small enough so that you can start parsing and executing in parallel while other stuff is downloading. I hope that makes sense. Yep, it does. In that regard, by the way, the, the performance tab in, in Chrome DevTools is really great because you can actually see both the download, the network, and the uh, JavaScript execution. It's a really busy kind of a tab, really you know, heavy display. And I know that a lot of developers are kind of uh, uh, wary of, of that tab because it contains so much information. But in this context, it's really, really useful because you can ensure that you're kind of getting uh, the optimal combination of, of download times and script parsing and execution. And, and we've definitely invested in that. And again, that's something that all the profiling that we're doing with the Web Performance API is helping us because we can make sure that we're counting how many uh, JavaScript files we're downloading, what's the total size of the JavaScript files, you know, when did we start downloading them, when did the last one finish downloading, and we can take all these into account and compare them and correlate them to when rendering started to happen and, and so forth. So one question that I have, well, I have two questions actually, and I'll try and make them really quick. Uh, the first one is, as you mentioned, that you gather the information from the web performance API and you put it all into some system. What system is that? Um, okay. So uh, um, I actually have a presentation of that, but I'm not the expert in the company of that. So uh, hopefully I, 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 I'll try not to, uh, uh, you know, give mis uh, misleading information. Mm -hmm. uh, Actually, let me try to phrase it somewhat differently. Uh, there are a lot of tools, third-party tools out there that you can actually use and leverage for monitoring performance uh, within your website. And anybody who's building a website, uh, uh, especially those who are building them for commercial reasons, uh, purposes, I highly recommend that you use some uh, mon uh, performance monitoring solution. I'm not going to advertise any one of them, but there are plenty of them out there. Now, we had been using some of them. At the end of the day, we ended up uh, rolling out our own infrastructure in this regard. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one reason is that our use case is kind of different from most. Uh, I remember at, uh, at one of the conferences talking with one of the vendors and he was extolling the virtues of their solution. And I said, uh, this sounds great, but you know, are you aware that we actually manage three and a half million different domains? And, <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, he kind of, uh, that caused him to kind of pause. 
And he said, well, maybe our tool isn't really right for you. Uh, now, obviously, that's not going to be the, the case for most people. So one of the reasons that we had to roll our own solution was the fact that our, you know, our scale was different than what you generally encounter out there. Another reason is that a lot of these tools actually charge based on the amount of data that you actually push into them or the uh, uh, the size of the queries that you run on them. And we were just putting out so much information that cost-wise, it actually made sense for us to have our own people uh, uh, managing uh, this infrastructure rather than paying a third-party provider. But certainly if you're uh, a medium-sized company or certainly a smaller-sized company or a startup and you've got one, maybe two sites, then it makes a whole lot of sense to, to use a, a third-party solution that's probably built and uses the web performance in, uh, API internally. So it's built on top of that and you not necessarily need to be aware of it. One thing that I would say is that when you look at a third-party solution, that um, you make sure that it's extensible. That means that you can actually uh, push in like custom events that are relevant for your product. Because, for example, a lot of these tools used to be used to just look at really standard events like DOM ready or or page load, and these are not really that relevant anymore in this day of age in day of age of single page applications. So you do want to be able to like kind of signal into that tool, telling telling the tool, okay, this is. The, the the time that I'm interested in in the context of of my specific application. So you you, you want to make sure that whatever tool you do pick uh, does provide APIs uh, for doing that. Or alternatively, as I said, uh, you can roll your own. Uh, basically, let me uh, open this up. I actually have uh, another presentation here. I think I actually sent you guys the link to a talk I did where I was talking about all the systems we were using on the back end. We're using Hadoop, for example. We're using Nginx. Uh, we are running things through, we are using Grafana. We're using Quix. We're using a whole bunch of things. We've, we've got uh, a large number of, of uh, business analysts, data analysts, and uh, data scientists that are actually busy crunching all these numbers. So I need to make sure that... I'm providing them with the relevant information and then they can do interesting stuff with it. Uh, you know what? I'll give you an interesting example that I don't know how many third-party tools are actually considering that. Maybe I'm throwing a tip to these tools. Uh, it turns out that uh, with modern browsers, they actually tell you what caused the page to load, whether the load was a result of just a regular navigation or a reload or uh, clicking the, the back button, for example. The, that's actually part of the information that's exposed to you by the Web Performance API. And uh, if you think about it, if, for example, you might measure the ratio of your the total loads of your page versus loads caused by a user performing a reload because it might be an indication mm -hmm. that there's a problem with your system if users are reloading your page too often. 
maybe your page is, is loading too slowly and it's like, you know, clicking the elevator button, or maybe it's loading incorrectly and they're pressing reload because they are hoping that whatever they're saying will correct itself if they load it again. So kind of displaying the ratio between regular loads and reloads can provide potentially useful information. And that's an example of something that you can get out of the web performance API. Interesting. Now I'm going to let Amy do her picks really quick. And then I have one more question that, in fact, I'll just throw the question at you real quick right now. You can think about your answer while Amy does her picks. But essentially it's, okay, you've gathered all this information. What do you do once you have it? Like, what do you look for and what patterns are you do you generally see? And how do you decide what to do next to optimize things? But Amy, go ahead and do your picks. Thanks. Yeah, it was uh, awesome to talk to you, Dan. Sorry, I got to run. But so I'm going to get I'm going to get kicked out, and I have a meeting that I have to go to in three minutes. Um, but my picks. We were talking at the beginning of the show, and I think I tweeted something about how early I wake up, and people were kind of shocked. But yeah, I usually wake up between three forty-five and four a.m. I do go to bed pretty early because of that. So one of my picks is just going to be I don't know if you seem if if you think that that might be if you're a moderate morning person. I might encourage you to try waking up like super early if you think you might like it, just because the people that I do know that wake up that early, I mean, the gym is actually, there's a good number of people in there when I get in there at like 4.30 and um, you're just able to be super productive because a lot of people are not uh, emailing yet. People aren't texting me yet. There's not a lot of traffic on the road. If I need to run to the store really quick and do an errand, there's nobody there yet. So um, it enables me to just be super productive and super focused. So usually what I'll do in the mornings is in between my sets, I'll answer emails from the night before or catch up on stuff that's going on on Twitter and stuff like that. It just enables me to really, really, really be like hyper-focused at that hour and not have any distractions. Um, So that's going to be my first pick. And then my second pick, uh, this was something that came up on Hacker News like a couple weeks ago. But I thought it was pretty good, just how to deal with dirty side effects in your pure functional JavaScript. So um, it starts off, I think I would recommend this to people who are kind of just getting started with functional programming. It starts off with some pretty basic, you know, concepts that you can borrow, but then it does get a little bit more advanced. So um, depending on how much experience you have, your mileage may vary. I'd encourage you to like finish it because it's pretty good. Uh, But that is it for me. Awesome. Cool. And it's coming to me that I potentially may have picked that recently. So if I did, I apologize. Uh, it, it was so good. You got it twice, folks. It, it really is that good, though. <laughs> I think you should read it. So, But they didn't get my morning pick. So cool. Nice. Okay. See you guys next week. Bye, Amy. Bye. 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 All right. So uh, back to that question, Dan. If, if people have gathered information about the performance of their web application, what should they be looking for and how should they react to it? Okay, so from my experience, we're actually using this data we're gathering in in three main ways. Uh, First and obvious way is to generate alerts. 
Um, you know, you're, you, nobody can expect you to be sitting in front of the graphs all day. Uh, so you really want to have uh, a good alerting system. And a good alerting system is a system that uh, doesn't have too many false positives on the one hand, but that you don't miss uh, the real important situations. Uh, the, so again, going back to, you know, how I mentioned about picking a good third-party solution for your monitoring, uh, one of the things that you need to make sure is that they do have a good alerting mechanism uh, built in and that whatever system you use for getting your alerts, maybe it's emails, it's maybe it's Slack, I don't know, maybe you're getting texts, whatever, that that system does in fact support it. So that's that's one important use for this information that we're gathering. Another is to see trends over long periods of time. You know, so um, uh, I need to present to management in the company uh, every quarter, uh, like sort of the how we how performance changed over that that period of time so i want to be able to show a graph that basically highlights the kpis that we are most interested in and how they change over time throughout that quarter or maybe throughout that year uh, so you definitely want to be able uh, to do that and have a system that does that and kind of in between, we're also looking at various real-time graphs uh, because, for example, one advantage that front-end developers have over back-end developers is that uh, usually things break when we deploy them. Uh, one of the advantages of being a front-end developer over back-end developers is that you're, the, the likelihood of being woken up uh, in the middle of the night is kind of lower. So, so uh, we might be looking at, uh, at the graphs, at the real-time graph during the couple of hours after we deployed a new version. And again, over time, we've learned to identify those KPIs that were really interesting for us, and we made sure that we calculated them and displayed them in, in the most uh, actionable uh, way. And in this regard, uh, you know, you may find uh, that whatever you've decided to measure and, and graph and display and alert on might be different than, you know, whatever somebody else is looking at. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Uh, Chris, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so for me this week, um, I actually just discovered this really awesome um, dependency-free library for, or vanilla JS library, if you prefer, plugin, what have you, for uh, off-canvas navigation. So great for slide-in, slide-out menus and things like that. Um, it's called Offside by Too Much Design, which is up on GitHub. Um, really helped me out, uh, saved me a ton of hours on a project I was working on recently. So that was pretty cool. Um, 
The other thing, um, I am uh, fully immersed in season three of Insecure on HBO. Um, so if you enjoyed the first two seasons, um, I would super recommend it. If you missed the first two seasons, uh, it's an awesome show. Um, it doesn't fall off in the second season like some other HBO shows have. Um, so I would highly recommend it. Awesome. I'm going to jump in with some picks here. Uh, one pick that I have, I, I have a love-hate relationship with my iPhone because I get addicted to these stupid games. Uh, the one that I've been playing lately is called Terra Genesis. Um, I picked it up, I'll admit, on Saturday. And so far, I've already terraformed Mars, and I am now working on terraforming <laughs> Venus. So uh, anyway, it's, it's kind of an interesting game. There's a lot of waiting that you wind up doing you know, for, for processes to complete and credits to build up and things like that. But anyway, it's been pretty fun to try and kind of get all of these different aspects to balance so that, uh, in theory, at least people could live on different planets. Uh, you start out in our solar system and you can buy all kinds of other stuff or all kinds of other planets to go and, and terraform. So, um, for example, Mars is different from Venus in the sense that uh, on Mars, you basically have to build up all of the atmosphere and a oxygen and everything. And in, on Venus, you actually have to dissipate some, or, you know, the the atmospheric pressure is too high. And so you have to bring it down, um, you know, and, and the, the surface temperature of the planet is way too high. So you have to bring that down and then build up the oxygen from scratch and the water from scratch. Anyway, so it's kind of interesting um, just playing that game. Um yeah, it, it's if I may comment, it's it's funny. You know, I'm not a big, I'm not so much into games. I'm not a big gamer. But if there is, if there's like one type of game that I do enjoy, is those those you know strategy build them type of games. And it's kind yeah. of funny because I actually at a certain stage in my career actually worked at creating games. So it's funny that while I don't enjoy playing games that much, I actually enjoy programming games, which I guess. Uh, is why I'm in software development. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we all have our thing, right? And yeah, in some ways, building software is kind of like a game. Is it going to work? <laughs> Are people going <laughs> to want it? Um, you know, so anyway. Um, two other things that I'm going to bring up really quickly. One is, so I've been reading, I've been listening to this book on my iPhone. I, I kind of go back and forth between listening to podcasts a lot and listening to uh, eBooks a lot or audiobooks a lot. The book I'm listening to right now is The One Thing. Um, and I've, I've really been enjoying that. And the question is essentially, what is the one thing that would um, make everything else easier or make it not necessary anymore? And work on that. And um, that really got me to focus on a lot of things. And one of the major things that they tell you to do in the book is to work four hours a day on those things. And it's kind of aimed, I guess, a little bit more at entrepreneurs. But you know, as developers, again, it's the same kind of thing, right? What, what kinds of things are going to make things easier or make uh, things unnecessary? So for example, writing tests, or, you know, we talked a whole bunch about performance, and maybe that's your one thing that's going to make the difference for your customers and your audiences and things like that. So um, anyway, it's, it's kind of interesting just to dig into that. But for me, it made me realize that my one thing really has to be, um, making all of the podcasting processes done. And I've, I've kind of been done doing that in my spare time. And now I'm going to be doing that like half time, you know, because it's four hours a day. So anyway, that that's kind of been the focus. And then what the, the thing that's nice about that is once I have those processes down, I've been working on some software to help manage the uh, podcasting processes. 
So then my next one thing may be that, right? So now I have all the processes, I know how it's all supposed to work, and then I can work on that. So, you know, maybe your one thing is setting up your deployment processes or setting something up to collect all this information or anything like that. So uh, anyway, really, really enjoying that. And then I have two announcements, uh, things that I have either released in, um, in the process of releasing or I'm working on. Uh, one is I'm, I'm working on getting more uh, content on my YouTube channel. Um, so I've started a show uh, since this will release in the future and I'm going to record them this afternoon. Um, I'm going to be releasing a show called JavaScript Rants and I'm just going to go look for information out there on JavaScript. Uh, at least one per week is going to be kind of on things that I'm thinking about or working on these days. So you're probably going to get a lot of like career advice over the next few weeks because I'm working on a book on how to find a job. Um, you know, but then whatever. Uh, the other thing that I'm working on, and I just set up a Kickstarter for it. Um, I don't know if the Kickstarter is public yet or not, but it will be by the time this goes live. Um, and it's for CodeBadge. So CodeBadge.org. Um, I, I've decided that uh, I have people ask me how to stay current. And I don't want to just put something out there that says, hey, do all this stuff and you're current. Um, so instead, what I thought was, well, what if people went out and they went through the process of learning a technology and then they somehow earned a badge for it? Um, and so I'm, I'm formulating that. And so then if you come in and you're saying, I want to learn Webpack or I want to learn, um, you know, one of the performance monitoring tools or something like that, um, there will be a process for learning that stuff and then maybe applying some of the stuff that you learned. And once you've done all that, then you can put links into where you did that stuff. So, you know, if you set up, you know, one of these monitoring tools, you can put a link into where you set it up or, you know, your GitHub repo with all your configs in it or something. And then it'll show you all that stuff. Anyway, um, I'm going to do a Kickstarter on it. And then um, I guess if it doesn't get kickstarted, then I'll gee whiz whatever it. And if not, if it does get kickstarted, then I'll probably have some people come in and help me build it. Um, but anyway, and I'm probably at least initially, going to be doing some YouTube videos on how I'm building that as well. I'm doing it with Elixir and Vue.js. So anyway, just throwing that out there. Uh, Dan, what are your picks? Um, so I have two picks for you. Uh, the first is actually uh, Wix Engineering has this really nice site that has uh, a blog where various engineers at Wix write I think really interesting blog posts and also videos from uh, when we go to various conferences. So the so there's this site and there's a lot of really interesting content there, both for front end and for back end. So that's uh, one thing, one link that I would like to put out there. Uh, the other is that uh, you were kind of talking about how to make learning and achieving fun. Well, one of the ways that I really like to do that sort of a thing is to come up with riddles. So I've uh, actually on on my Twitter, I've actually been posting like every couple of weeks, sometimes it's a bit more, sometimes less, uh, JavaScript riddles. And uh, I've collected quite a number. I think uh, there are a couple of dozens out there. So I'm actually going to put a link that's like to that Twitter hashtag that will bring up uh, all these JavaScript riddles. And maybe another link associated with that is I actually uh, did already a talk at the conference where I basically collected some of these riddles and, and presented them to, to the people there. And I thought it was a lot of fun. So, so these are my links. Awesome. One last thing. Uh, where do people find you online? Do you have a blog or tweet or anything like that? 
Yeah, so probably the the best way place to connect with me online would be via Twitter. So I'm just Dan Shapir on Twitter. Uh, that's uh, Shapir with a double P. Uh, and uh, I'd love to connect with you. I try to blog, but to be honest, I haven't done it in a while. Just like too busy, I guess. It's one of those things that I know I need to do, but I just don't get around to it. And I do try to attend uh, two or three conferences a year at least. So if you happen to catch me at a conference, make sure to come up and say hi. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Dan. Uh, We'll have to have you back on and talk a little bit more about this with the resources and things like that. Yeah, I'd enjoy that a lot. I think it's a a really important topic. And I think it's, you know, good things are happening there. The the browser manufacturers are doing some awesome stuff. And uh, it's really an interesting topic, I think. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming and talking to us. You're welcome. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Well, we'll wrap this up and we will catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.